let's get into the message, the Word of God. We're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. There's a lot here today, so I'm going to dive right in here. Let's start reading as we continue in our series on John. After this, this being, remember last week, uh, Nicodemus, Jesus and Nicodemus having a discussion about being born again. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing near Anan, near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Let me just mention real quick, this is why when we baptize, we immerse people. This is one of the pieces of evidence, biblically, that we think makes immersion um, make sense and how it pictures uh, being buried with Christ in baptism and rising to new life. And they were doing it in a place where there is plentiful water. Now, if you, if you baptize just by sprinkling, like you don't need a place with plentiful water, right? You just need a big jar. It's probably good for several hundred people. Um, but they were baptizing where there was plentiful water. It also says, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, why did John mention this? Second little side note before we continue reading. Because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there they talk about Jesus' ministry as when they pick up from when John the Baptist is imprisoned by Herod. And then they start tracking the ministry of Jesus. So they don't talk about what happened before John was put in prison. John, the gospel writer, not John the Baptist, here is saying, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what was happening before John was put in prison. Okay, so that's why he mentions that little side note here. But let's continue. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of God. So um, it, Jesus and John the Baptist, they're both baptizing people. We know that John and his disciples were baptizing people. Many, many people were getting baptized. Probably thousands of people were getting baptized. But now here, Jesus' disciples are also baptizing. It wasn't Jesus himself, which is made clear in another place in the gospel. It was his disciples. 
We can understand why, right? If we remember in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you. Remember when they were like competing and saying, oh, you know, I follow Paul. Oh, I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Peter. And then, and then um, Paul was saying, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you except for maybe this guy and that household. I don't remember if I baptized anybody else because people were probably would have said, I was baptized by Paul. Now, can you imagine if you got baptized by Jesus? You'd be like, man, I never need to shower again, right? I got baptized by the man. Maybe that's why he didn't baptize, but his disciples were baptizing. But both of these groups were baptizing people, and more and more people were going to Jesus. In fact, tons of people were going over to him, even more than were going to John the Baptist. Now here, in verse 25, it says, there's a discussion that came up between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now we have no idea what this discussion was about. This is so obscure. There are no details given here. The Jew was probably somebody, by calling him a Jew, who was not a disciple of John, who was not a disciple of Jesus, uh, somebody who, who maybe wasn't buying into Jesus being the Messiah or John the Baptist message, whatever it was. There was this discussion here. What were they talking about? They're talking about purification. What about purification? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But there's a hint here. There's a hint here. Because after this, this discussion, John's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, to talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. What's going on here? I don't know, but here's my guess. This is conjecture. But maybe this Jew came and talked to John's disciples. Maybe he was arguing with them, saying, no, 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 what is this, what is this you're doing? This baptism here in the river. This is not right. Moses gave us many ceremonial cleansings and washings that we could read about in the law. What are you doing down here in the river talking about this cleansing over here? This is not according to the law. What are you doing? And you know what else? Look, look, this mess that you're making, it's spreading. It's spreading. Not only people are coming to you here and doing this wrong, but, but that guy, Jesus, you know, the carpenter, that guy, he, him and his disciples, they're also doing this, and even more people are going over there. You guys better stop this. You're making a mess. I don't know. That's a guess. That's a guess. But whatever this discussion was about, it led to John's disciples going, what in the world? John, John, rabbi. Look, more people are going to Jesus than are coming to us here. And, and, you know, they called him rabbi. I think that's meaningful here because it's the only place in this gospel that somebody aside from Jesus is called rabbi. So his, his disciples here are, are jealous for the reputation, the prestige of their, their teacher. And they're like, rabbi, look, look what's happening that guy, yeah, you pointed to him. You talked about some Messiah stuff. That's cool. But listen, you are John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Baptism is your game. That's, that's what we do. We baptize, not that guy over there. And now everybody's going over there. They were jealous. They were envious. They were like getting competitive with Jesus. You know, like sometimes the followers of a person are more zealous for the person than the person him or herself, right? You know, it's true right? Like, like any Swifties in the house, you know what I'm talking about? You know, I've heard it is bad for your health to say anything negative 
about Taylor Swift online, right? You know, like sometimes the followers are so zealous. John the Baptist's disciples here are zealous for him. You're the Baptist. They're going to him. John, do something about this. It led to this competitiveness, this envy, and this jealousy. Now, we look at this, we say, well, what does that have to do with us? Because I think the natural inclination is to go, these guys, John the Baptist, his disciples, they're so dumb. (laughs) They're competing with Jesus. (laughs) Are you serious? Who would compete with Jesus? I mean, like, hey, if I'm doing my thing and Jesus came over and said, hey, give me the wheel, I'm going to drive, would I be like, nah, Jesus, I drive better than you? I'd be like, Jesus, take the wheel. Come on. Uh, Who would be dumb enough to compete with Jesus or be envious of Jesus or be jealous of Jesus? What does this have to do with us? But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, I think this has everything to do with us. Why? Because, how does this relate to us? Because whenever we compete with other Christians, whenever we are jealous or envious of other Christians, or of anybody who is a part of the body of Christ, whom God is working through, whom God fills with this Holy Spirit, whom Jesus says is my body, we are by default competing with Jesus. When you're competitive with, jealous of, or envious of other Christians, other churches, whom Christ fills, you are being competitive with Jesus. You are envious of Jesus. You're being jealous of Jesus. That's what's happening. And that relates to all of us because we all are tempted to do that. Missionaries do this. Missionaries may, may go into a certain country, into a certain city or a town. I was talking to somebody who was telling me, yeah, you know, we were, we were missionaries. We wanted to go into this certain town in this certain country to do work, and there was another missionary there. It's a town. It's got thousands and thousands of people. The other missionary said, this is my turf. Don't you come in here. I'm working here. That happens. Christians do that. Missionaries do that. How often do churches see other churches as competition rather than being a part of the same body of Christ? I will, I will confess to you, it is, it is such a common thing that when a group of pastors get together, there is this temptation to size each other up based on the size of your congregation in a really pastorally subtle and socially acceptable way, right? You don't go up and ask, so how big's your church? You go, oh, where are you meeting? Or... or, or, or or, oh, you know, um, you know I, I don't know. You ask some other way of saying things. But then you're, you're trying to figure out, where do you fit and where do I fit compared to you? Pastors, we can get competitive of each other. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. Maybe, maybe you, you serve in the church by singing. And you have, a, you have a wonderful voice and it blesses people. And that's your jam. That's what you do. You sing for God and, and you, you, you worship and you help people to worship. But then one day somebody comes along who sings more beautifully than you. And then when this person sings, it feels like the clouds part, 
right? And birds start chirping and people start gushing over this person like, wow, I feel so moved by the presence of God every time this person sings. And all of a sudden, the limelight's on that person. And, and, and in your heart, you're thinking, oh man, singing was my thing. And you find yourself thinking, oh man, I, don't do, I, I wonder if they knew about this other person. If they knew what he or she does, you know, when they're not at church, oh, they wouldn't think his singing is so great. Or maybe even try to bring that person down subtly in the things that you say to others. We do that. We get competitive. We get envious. Maybe you're there saying, you know what, Ulysses, you're talking to the wrong person. I have no leadership aspirations in my body at all not a leadership bone in my body. I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to sing in front of people. I don't want to be a leader. I don't care about any of that. But you know what? Friends, think of it. Do you ever, if you ever see God work in somebody else, another part of the body of Christ, and bless that person, Work in that person in a great way. Bless that person. Bless their family. Bless their health. Bless, bless whatever. And it results in anything else aside from joy in your heart. There's a competitiveness within you. There's an envy. There's a jealousy within you. Or maybe we do the reverse. When we rejoice in other people's misfortunes. There's a German term, schadenfreude. You know that term? Schaden, uh, misfortune, freude. Joy, you take joy in the misfortune of others. Why would people do that? Because when others are doing poorly, you relatively, you relatively feel like you are doing better. Isn't that true? Oh, you didn't get the promotion? I'm so sorry. I feel so bad for you. But in your heart, you're thinking, ah, at least he's not getting further ahead in life than me. Oh, you didn't get into that grad school or that program that you want to go to? I feel so sorry for you. Maybe next year. But this person ain't got more degrees than I do. Man, what? She broke up with you? Oh, dude, I'm so sorry. Let's go hang out. Man, I'll be there for you. I'll be a shoulder for you to cry on. But at least you can join me in singleness. <laughs> I, I, you ain't leaving me behind Ever have that, that feeling, maybe? And there's nothing wrong with singleness. Singleness is, we talked about 1 Corinthians, can be a joy, can be a blessing. But if you feel that in your heart, that's a problem. There's a competitiveness, there's an envy, a jealousy. What was the first thing that happened outside of the Garden of Eden? Cain killed Abel. Why did he do it? Because God accepted Abel's offering, said that it was proper, but he didn't accept Cain's. What did Cain do? Did Cain go to God? God, I got an issue we got to talk about here. You didn't accept Abel's, you didn't accept my offering, you accepted Abel's offering. He didn't do that. What did he do? He went and he killed his brother because he was envious and jealous of God's acceptance of him, but not of Cain himself. What is the cure for this envy, this jealousy and this competitiveness that we experience even within the body of Christ, even within our own church. How, how do we deal with that? Well, today I want to look here at John's response. And in verses 27, 28, 29, and 30 here, four verses, 
there are four things that I want to point out in how John thought about this and how he dealt with this. And I think there is so much that we can learn about this. So his disciples were like, they're all going to Jesus. John, stop them, stop them. Tell them, no, come back to us. What did John say? Verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What is John saying here? There's not, I cannot do the smallest, tiniest thing unless it were given to me to do by the grace of God by heaven. Not even the smallest thing. Our problem is, what we tend to think is, this is how we think. Look at all the things that I've done, that I've accomplished, because I'm smart, because I work hard, because I'm capable, because I'm strong. Look at all the things I've done. Because we think this way, we then think that must mean I am a person of value. I have worth. I have value because of all these things that I have done. Therefore, I am a person of value. So what happens when somebody comes along who is more accomplished than you? Who does more than you? Who sings better than you? Who makes more money than you? Who's, who, who's more recognized than you? What happens? Oh, this person has done more than me. Therefore, based upon the way I see things, that means this person is of greater value than me. And I am of less value than this person. Do you see how that works out? If you base your value upon what you accomplish. When somebody comes along who accomplishes more, you think, I'm of less value. This person's of more value. You end up feeling threatened. You begin to compete, to try to catch up in quote-unquote value with this person by doing just as much, if not more. Maybe you begin to criticize that other person to other people or slander him or her to try to bring them down and lower their value so that your value relatively increases. That's what we do when we think this way. What does John do? How does he think? He says, I couldn't have done anything. I couldn't have accomplished anything through my own strength, my own intelligence, my own capability, my own hard work. I couldn't have done the smallest thing in the world unless I received it from heaven unless God gave it to me to do. Not the smallest thing. Nine months ago, we saw this in 1 Corinthians 4, when Paul was addressing the Corinthians about, I follow Paulos, I follow Paul, I follow Peter. What did he say? For who sees anything different than you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Why do we boast? as if we accomplished it, you accomplished it, through your own capability or ingenuity. Anything good, brothers and sisters, that you've ever done and ever will do is a gift of God. Who boasts in themselves when everything is by the grace of God? So what are we going to do? We are going to recognize this grace of God. We're going to recognize this reality that everything I do is because of the grace of God, and we are going to give thanks to God. God, thank you 
Thank you that you would do even anything through a sinner like me, God. I give you praise for anything that I can do because it's from you and it's not from me. We're also going to repent. We're going to repent if we've been boasting in our pride, if we've been thinking, I have done this, I have done that, so I am somebody. No, I can't receive a single thing unless it's given from heaven. Number two, he says in verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is so powerful here, what John says, so simple, but so powerful. I am not the Christ. (laughs) I'm not the Christ. I told you, I told you, I am not the Christ. John knew who he was not. I am not the Christ. That's not me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior of the world. I am not him. I am not the Christ. He also knew who he was. I was sent before him. In chapter 1, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, I know who I am. I'm a messenger. That's all. I'm the one who's preparing the way for Jesus. I'm the one here whose life is to be a signpost pointing to Jesus. That's who I am. I am not the Christ. I'm just a messenger. This is why John was not flummoxed that Jesus was gaining in popularity. He wasn't flummoxed anytime somebody said, John, uh, I'm going to leave you. Sorry, sir. I'm going to go to the one that you pointed to. He wasn't flummoxed by that. It didn't bother him in the slightest bit that his ministry was shrinking and Jesus was increasing. He knows, I am not the Christ. I know who I am. Friends, when you don't, when you don't know who you are, you're going to be spending all of your time and energy trying to be somebody else. That's what you're going to end up doing. And it's usually going to be devoting your energy into being somebody that the world will applaud, that people will will say nice and impressive things about, so that people will say, oh, you're so smart, you're so capable, you're so accomplished, you're so beautiful, you're so handsome, you're so athletic, whatever it might be. You're going to work so hard trying to be that person because you want the world to say these things about you because you don't know who you are. You're trying to be somebody else, and that's a waste of time. Solomon knew this really well. In Ecclesiastes, he said, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is all toil. People in this world, they work so hard. Why? Because they're envious. Because they want to be seen as somebody by other people. He said, that's vanity. That's like chasing the wind. It's such a waste of your life. Friends, how much much anxiety is there in this world because we're trying to be somebody else? How many sleepless nights do we experience? How much much neglect of our physical health? How How many mental health issues come upon us? Are we facing as a society because we're striving to be somebody that you're not? Yet this is what the world does. There's a, there's a story about a famous rabbi named Zusha. He was a Hasidic rabbi in the 18th century. He was, he was uh, in Ukraine. 
And it says that he, he was laying on his deathbed when he was dying, laying on his deathbed, surrounded by his disciples. And he was crying inconsolably. Nobody could comfort him. And one of his students asked the rabbi, he said, Rabbi, why do you cry? You were, you were almost as wise as Moses and as kind as Abraham. And Rabbi Zusha answered, when I pass from this world and be, appear before the heavenly tribunal, they won't ask me, Zusha, why weren't you as wise as Moses or as kind as Abraham? Rather, they will ask me, Zusha, why weren't you Zusha? Why didn't I fulfill my potential? Why didn't I follow the path that could have been mine? Friends, when you make others into competition, when you are envious, when you are jealous, you are trying to be somebody else. Be who God made you to be. I am not the Christ, but I know who I am. What do we do? Mini message inside a message. One, know who you are. Know who you are. You're a beloved child of God. If you're a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior who has cleansed you of your sins, you are a child of God. That's who you are. Let me ask you a question. I have a $100 bill in my hand right here. Who would like this $100 bill? Oh, y'all so rich. Okay. Okay. Y'all would want this $100 bill, right? You want this $100 bill. Why? Because $100. It's $100. Even in Silicon Valley, you could do something. You could do something with this, right? What if I took this $100 and I, and I, I crumpled it up like this? Like this. Ah, who would want this $100 now? All of you. You'd still want this $100. What if I took this $100 and I threw it on the floor and I stomped on it and I stepped on it? Oh, take that. Take that, you $100. Who would want that $100? Yes, all the hands on the back. All the hands on the back. Yes, you still want that $100. What if I said to this $100, I said, $100, you ain't worth $100. Who do you think you are? You're not even worth $1. You're not even worth one penny. You're not even worth the paper that you're printed on. And I chucked it on the ground here and I walked away, would it still be here tomorrow? No. One of you enterprising young people would run up here pretending to receive prayer at the end of service, run up here, <laughs> grab it, stick it in your pocket, and be like, it's time to go to Baskin Robbins, right? Just because it doesn't matter what we say about what you say to it, how you step on it, how you crush it, it's still worth $100. Friends, it doesn't matter, putting it safely back in my pocket here, you see, when you know who you are, it doesn't matter what the world says about you, how it spits on you, how it steps on you, how it compares you to others. When you know, I'm not a hundred, I'm not a billion dollars. When God looks at me, it says, beloved of God, nothing in this world matters. I know who I am. You got to know who you are. Secondly, you got to discover who you are. John the Baptist knew, I'm, I'm a messenger. That's my role in the kingdom of God. Discover who you are in the kingdom of God, your role. I'm not just talking about your identity as a child of God, but your role in the child of God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, he said that every one of us is a unique and special part of the body of Christ and you are needed. You are needed. Every single one of us, God is specially made to do a unique thing and only you can do it. You're a special part of the body of Christ. But what do we tend to do? Oh, I want to be a hand. I want to be an eye. I'm a liver. Go, I don't want to be the liver. 
You need to be, if God made you the liver, you need to be the liver. You are a vital organ. The body will die without a liver. Ain't that right, doctors in the house? You will die without a liver. You are specially made part of the body of Christ. Work hard to discover your calling in the Lord. Work hard to discover the spiritual gifts that God has given you so that you can be who God has made you to be. We work so hard trying to figure out what job I want to get. Work so hard trying to figure out where do I want to live, researching that. You work so hard on drafting your fantasy football team. How hard do we work on knowing, God, what is my calling? What is my gifting? How have you made me? Do you have people in your life? Do you let people into your life so deeply that they can actually know you and assist you in this? Do you have somebody who could, who could say to you things like, hey, man, you are such a good, you could teach the Bible so well to other people, but you need to stop being lazy and squandering that gift. Do you have somebody who could say to you, man, you're so good at listening to other people and, 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 and being in a shoulder for them to cry on and, to, and, and listening to them, but you know, you have a bit of a Messiah complex. You feel like you got to be the one to save everybody. Do you have people in your life that you've let in so deeply who can speak into your soul about discovering who you are? Discover who you are. Thirdly, lastly in this mini message here, be fully who you are. When you discover who you are, be fully who you are. Be satisfied with being a liver. Be satisfied with who God made you to be. And I think Jesus describes this so beautifully in the parable of the talents, where one person got, what was it, one, two, and five, right? Three different people. You got one talent of, of gold. You got two talents of gold. You got five talents of gold. The one with five turned it into ten. The one with two turned it into four. The one with one buried it in the ground. What did, I want to focus on the two and the five. What did Jesus say? They both doubled it, right? Five became ten. Two became four, if I'm remembering correctly. What did Jesus say to both of them? Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? The five became ten. The two became four. Jesus didn't say, how come you didn't get ten? Why don't you match up to this other guy? What's the point of the message? You doubled it. You made full use of whatever you got. And you're going to get the same message from me. Well done. You fulfilled your mission. You did everything I gave you to do. Whether you're a Billy Graham up on the stage and preaching in front of thousands, or you're, you're, you're somebody just unknown and caring for your neighbors and your family and, and, and sharing the gospel with others, whatever it might be, be fully who you are. Friends, imagine, imagine with me for a moment here, being free from trying to be somebody else. Imagine not being shaken when others don't, don't, aren't impressed by you or don't think of you in, in, in a way that is impressive or, or applauds you in the way that the world applauds people. Imagine being free from the temptation to think that you're only somebody when other people praise you. Imagine that. It comes from knowing, I'm not the Christ, but I know who I am. I'm beloved of God. I know what God has made me to do. Third, verse 29 John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What's going on here? John the Baptist is using wedding imagery, wedding imagery. And this was a very familiar thing to any Jews back then because in the Old Testament, we see there that God is referred to as the husband, the bridegroom, and the people of God are referred to as the bride. 
as the, as the wife of God. In Isaiah, for example, 54, it says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. We see this in the New Testament too. The church is described as the bride of Christ. Paul, when he's talking about marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he says that this is actually referring to Christ and the church. Even human marriage is meant to be a big illustration, a metaphor that points to the love of God as the bridegroom for his people, the church, which is the bride of Christ. That, that's, that's what this language that John the Baptist is referring to here. And when he says the friend of the bridegroom, he's talking about himself here, the friend of the bridegroom, that's the ancient equivalent of the best man, the best man of the wedding. And this person organized details and, and presided over the wedding and, and did a really, really important role. In fact, he was the one who brought the bride to the bridegroom. And when he did this, his job was done. His job was done. His goal was not, his place was not to take center stage, but to let the bridegroom take center stage there. Listen, if you, look, like red flag warning here, right? Like guys, if you're going to get married, you choose, you know, your best man or your groomsman, you're like, hey guys, I'm getting married. Here, here's the, the reservation number at Men's Warehouse, right? Go get your tuxedo and stuff and like that. And then your best man goes, no, 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 no. Thank you, thank you. I got this. Christian Dior is making me a $20,000 customized tuxedo with sequins. It's going to look fabulous. I'm going to be wearing a top hat. up. No, okay, top hat looks ridiculous. But I'm going I'm it's gonna, to it's gonna be, I'm going to be killing it. It's going to look amazing. That's a big red flag. That's a jerk, right? Upstaging you, the groom, during your own wedding, during your own wedding. That's what we do. That's what we do when we compete and when we are jealous, no, we are called to be the friend of the bridegroom. What does this mean? John says, I rejoice. I, I rejoice when I hear the bridegroom's voice. This joy of mine is complete when I bring people to Christ. Our greatest joy, our greatest joy should be to see the church become pure and devoted to her husband, Christ, in every way. And seeing that happen in every single person's life, that should be what makes us happy. That should be what makes us joyful. Friends, are you, are you thrilled? Are you thrilled? Are you filled with joy when you see God bless people around you? Even if you didn't get blessed, I'm rejoicing because God is working in his bride and I'm about the bride. I'm about the bride being prepared for the bridegroom. I'm not about myself. God blessed you. God blessed you. God blessed you. Maybe he didn't bless me right now, but I give thanks for that. I'm going to pray that God blesses you and God blesses you and God blesses you because I rejoice when God does that even if it didn't happen to me. Is that your heart? John the Baptist said, oh, my joy is complete. Man, when people leave me and they go to Jesus, that makes me even happier. When people leave me, when it becomes less about me, and Jesus is exalted. Are you blessed? Are you overjoyed when you see God bless others? Their finances, their children, their health, because God is blessing his bride? Or do you go into competition mode, comparison mode, envy mode, jealousy mode? If that's the case, you're not rejoicing at the bridegroom getting his bride. 
Man, friends, this is hard. This is hard. I am learning. I am learning that I am not the Christ. I am learning that I'm meant to be the best man and not to be the bridegroom. I'm learning that. I'll be, I will confess, when I hear other pastors say, Ulysses, oh man, my church is doing so well. Man, it's blown up. People are coming to know the Lord. People are growing. We're growing. So we're planting new churches and everything. I'm like, oh, that's good. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You know, I'm like, like, you know, but there's something inside of me, something inside of me that doesn't always rejoice in that. That's a problem. That's a problem. I'm not rejoicing in the blessing coming upon the bride being prepared for the bridegroom. Somebody once said, I don't know who said this, but somebody once said that if you're praying for revival to come to your city, you're praying for revival, and it breaks out in the church across the street, and you're not happy, you were never praying for revival. You were praying for yourself. So true. So what are we going to do? We're going to pray for others. We are going to rejoice when others rejoice. We are going to mourn when others just mourn. We are going to pray, not just for our own church. We're going to pray for other churches and other pastors and missionaries. Why? Because it is going to be, by the grace of God, our greatest joy when we see the bride of Christ growing wherever she may be. Rejoicing. Fourth and lastly, John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. These are the last words of John the Baptist before he's imprisoned and he is beheaded. The last words of this man that Jesus said, among those born of women, there has come no one greater than John the Baptist. These are his last words in the gospel. He must increase, but I must decrease. Surely one of the greatest things ever said by a human being. Brothers and sisters, what, what are we about? What are you trying to do in everything that you do? What is the goal of your life? Is it that Christ would increase and, but that I would decrease, that you would decrease? You know, when I was preparing this message, I had, to, I had to ask myself, Ulysses, what are you doing? What are you trying to do when you get up on this stage? And if the real honest me comes out, it'll be like, you know, I, I want people to think highly of me. I want people to think that, oh, you're a good pastor. You're a good speaker. I want this church to grow because then people will say, oh, you're, you're doing well. You're successful. That's, that's a lot of what's within my heart. That's what I'm trying to do. I got to ask myself, Ulysses, what are you trying to do here? Or is my goal up here on this stage that when I come up here, that nobody would see me? And at the end of the day, that you'd walk away going, oh my gosh, Christ is amazing. I, I give praise to this God. I give praise to Jesus. He is so amazing. Oh man, my heart still, still got a long way to go. Still got a long way to go. Is that my desire, that when I preach up here, is it to sound good? Is that my goal? 
Or is it that I would disappear because Christ is so magnified, he becomes so big in the eyes of people, it didn't even matter who was up here and who was speaking. That's my confession. That's what I need to work on. Friends, what are you, what is the goal? What, what is the goal of what you're doing with your life? Is your goal this? Jesus must increase through my life. That is the purpose of my life, to bring glory to God. That through everything I do in my life, it points more to Jesus, that Jesus is more exalted, that he is more known, he is more loved, he is more, more beheld and, and, and awed, and, it, it, beheld in awe and, and magnified. Is that what your goal in life is? He must increase and I must decrease because it's not about me. I don't want people to see me. I want them to see the glory of God. That my goal in life is not that I would be noticed and made much of, but that my Savior would be made much of. What is your life about? Let's be honest. If you think about your time, your energy, your heart, your fears, what do your fears point to? Your desires. What is your goal? He must increase and I must decrease? Or is it the other way around? What are you striving for? And as if, you know, if the, if the words of John the Baptist end here, and I think they do, and then John, the gospel writer, takes over, it feels almost like verses 31 through 36 are, are John, the gospel writer, bringing this home, emphasizing this greatness, why Christ must increase and why we must decrease. And just, I'm just going to skim through this, but he says, Christ, he is from heaven. We are from earth. He is above all. He is the only one from heaven. He is God. And you know what? He doesn't just speak when he bears witness, when he speaks testimony. He doesn't just speak for himself because whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. When Jesus speaks, we don't just say that Jesus is true. We say God is true because Jesus speaks the very words of God in behalf of God because he is God. And not only this, he has the spirit without measure. Old Testament prophets, they received the spirit of God according to what they needed to do a measure of the Spirit of God to be able to finish prophesying or finish doing whatever it is that God called them to do. But Jesus has the Spirit of God without measure because He is God as well. And He is the one who gives the Spirit of God to those who believe in Him. Not only that, the Father has given everything into Jesus' hands. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the ultimate and only mediator between God and men. It is Jesus Christ. And through him, we receive eternal life. All praise and glory and honor be to the Lamb of God who sits upon the throne. Let us stand and let us worship together.